I, I got those salt uh, capsules and I was using them, but I didn't really know why I needed to take it uh, and what it did to my body. And I think I, at the time I mostly linked it to cramp. I was towards the end on the downhill. Suddenly I was completely stuck. I was in cramp, I couldn't move anymore. And I thought, okay, let me take a salt pill. And I took it and it didn't do anything. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, the sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take those questions and break it down and invite a guest expert or practitioner in our A episode and a guest athlete or coach in the B episode to add their unique perspective as well. Today, it's episode 47B, how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? And we're joined by ultra runner Martin Dukas. In this episode, we discuss a recap from last week of when sodium replacement is important during exercise and why. We'll look at Martin's prior experiences with sodium losses and replacement. We'll look at the results of some lab testing that he's done recently as part of a research study and using the approach that we discussed during last week's episode to work out precisely what his sodium replacement needs are during exercise. But before we get to all of that, how are you going, Steph? I know we've had to reschedule this a couple of times because things have been a bit hectic for you. Mm. Yeah, a bit hectic. Um, just thought I got on top of marking out, which you know all about, and then I've just gotten flooded in with, a, um, yeah, a, a heap again. So, but I'm not complaining about getting work. So it's that is good. Um, I'm happy with that. Yeah, and then just got asked to review a, a paper which I'm very excited about for for a journal and I think yeah it just happened last week I don't know if you saw it out as well on Twitter Trent Stellingworth who we've had on mm. the show before yeah there's you know been discussion on whether reviewers should be getting paid for their time because it it takes a lot of time to review a paper particularly when we all are going to do our best job, you know, um, yeah. we want to give quality feedback. And I don't know if listeners know, but, you know, we don't get paid for that time. And, you know, then you've got arguments about, well, reviewers shouldn't be paid because then it could influence bias, you know, when you're reviewing the paper and those types of things. But, you know, academia, like we, you need, we need money <laughs> to be able to keep doing what we're doing. And, yeah, like there's been a paper recently out in The Lancet, April this year, and they actually discussed this topic. It was a correspondence piece. And they, they looked at the amount of time that reviewers spend. And in 2020, they said reviewers spent over 100 million hours in <laughs> reviewing papers, which, you yeah. know, that makes sense to us because we know how yes. long it takes. So, yeah, I think the whole sort of academic publishing system needs a review 
But mm. yeah, that, it was, yeah, there was a real interesting piece if anyone's interested. Um, it's, you know, free full text available in, in the Lancet. Mm. Mm. But that got yeah. me fired up. <laughs> yeah, and I think probably traditionally, I suspect historically, a lot of that, it was assumed that reviews would be part of what an academic does in their paid time at the university. Mm. And, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago it was, and they had the time to do that. But mm. uh, times ever changed and yeah. uh, it always happens outside of your actual employed hours these days and that's hence that the payment issues come up yeah exactly basically working for free yeah yeah and what about you Al? how are you going um yeah yeah no pretty good had a uh, good weekend took the kids to the footy the aflw oh, so that was good, good. Yeah. yeah so they yeah. uh they had a lot of fun there it was um yes nice and relaxed, uh, where we're customers of NAB, which is one of the banks here in Australia for those oh. listeners who aren't in Australia, and they, they're a major sponsor. Yep. So basically any NAB customers got free food at the footy, oh. which was oh, nice. Oh, really? Yep, yep. And then the oh, kids went cool. over. There was a thing where they could do, you know, practice kicking and handballing and things yep. on this inflatable target thing. And then the kids got picked out to be interviewed Oh. Uh, during half time, so they yeah. got interviewed. There's, oh, there's no big cool. screen there, so it's just audio. But yeah, you know, pumped through the entire PA, including just... you know my wife sitting at the other end of the ground. Yeah, hearing yeah. the kids being interviewed, so that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they had a great time. It was, it was good. Um, good. Good weather. We've had some shocking days, but we've had some yeah. pretty nice ones as well, and much better than you know New South Wales and Queensland that have really copped it with flooding and things over mm. the, the last week or so, although I think we're getting some of that rain coming in the next couple of days, unfortunately. Mm. But actually speaking of rain, Steph, mm. we had a great catch-up in person on it Friday did. last week and it pelted down rain. I was lucky <laughs> I arrived just as the rain was about to start and yes. then I left just after the rain stopped, yes. so that was lucky. But, um, yeah. no, we had a good catch-up to discuss, I guess, a bit of planning for the mm. future of the Long Munch and, and what that's going to look like. So mm. uh, nothing really to reveal today, but mm. I think there'll be some exciting things that we can talk about and a few announcements to come over the next few weeks, which would be nice. Yeah, yep, the weather got excited, so pelted down in um, anticipation. Yes, <laughs> yes, but Cooper was very good. He slept through the whole way. He did, he did. Mm. Um, and, and until he, you made yeah. pizza. Yeah, and then he was at our feet, <laughs> mm. <laughs> scratching you. Um, and you also recently uh, did a professional development session for the Sport Institute of Ireland last week. How did that all go? Yeah, that was really good. So they asked me to do a case review of one of their athletes who had a lot of problems with exercise-associated muscle cramping, actually. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, that was a really good sort of opportunity to, to do the review of that case and sort of what they've been working on, what they're working towards, and then give any feedback and suggestions. And then they asked me to follow up the the actual written case review with a face-to-face, a -face, you know, telehealth kind of session with them yeah. to sort of run over the case again, answer any questions, and, and provide just some more general sort of professional development around cramping. So it was really timely, actually, because that paper that we spoke about a few weeks ago with Professor Kevin Miller uh, and those sort of questions that we ran through in the follow-up episode with Ben Hill, mm. uh, I actually used those in that case review. It was the first time I'd ever used them. So um, mm. it was really timely that that Kevin's paper and those questions all came together and then the podcast that we did with him just around the time that I was doing this. So, yeah, no, it was, it was a great session. And, um, yeah, I think they, they seemed to get a lot out of it and, and I really enjoyed doing it. So it was great. Awesome. 
Well, let's go into social media shout-outs now, Steph. Now, last week we had a pretty quiet week on social media, but this week it's roared back into life a little bit. Mm-hmm. What have we had coming through on Twitter? Yeah, we had Angela Davies who mentioned that she hikes daily for hours in all sorts of weather and that's usually in, um, in the hills in Lilydale. She generally consumes about three to four litres of, of fluid, which is by way of tea, coffee, um, mineral water, kombucha, low-sodium um, types of drinks, V8 juice. And she also consumes a teaspoon of bulk nutrients, electrolytes. She has a heap of t- um, teaspoon of miso, tamari, seasoned salt, olives, low-sodium Vegemite, and so she's asking the question to salt or not to salt. And uh, what's your thoughts on this one, Al? Mm, That is the question. Um, Yeah, this one came through actually when we put up the preview about what the podcast was going to be last week before we actually put up the podcast about sodium. So hopefully that episode started to answer that question, and I think today's episode will finish answering that question. But, you know, as we got to last week, really the the requirement for sodium during exercise is really predicated on how fluid is being replaced and you can't really plan one without fully understanding the other. So knowing your sweat losses, but also how much you're then going to drink to replace that. And it's once you're drinking more than about 70% of your sweat losses back that actually replacing the sodium makes sense. Now that doesn't mean you don't have sodium at all. If you like the, you know, savory flavor, then, you know, go for it, Angela. But, um, it just means that you don't need to go out of your way to deliberately add supplemental sodium to it. And mm-hmm. I guess for, for something like hiking, the overall sweat loss, you know, even though it's for a long time, unless you're really pushing, carrying heavy weight in very hot weather, the sweat loss is going to be relatively low. And so as we'll see, we'll get to the end of um, today's podcast. We'll talk a little bit about that when we summarise. It's probably not going to be sufficient to actually need to replace more than 70% of your water losses. And therefore, if you're not doing that, you don't really need a specific amount of sodium. It's more about taste preferences. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So we had someone contact us on, or we had a couple of people contact us on Facebook as well, Steph. Yeah, we had Louise McKinley. Um, she's commented on um, some of our episodes before two hour, I think. Um, she can't wait for this one. I looked like a salt shaker at the end of London Marathon last Sunday. Well done on completing that. Um, And thanks, guys, you jinxed me with cramps. (laughs) She's actually never experienced them before. So uh, sorry to hear about that one, but hopefully you can now refer to, yeah, well, she's already listened, obviously, to Kevin Miller's Mm. um, episode, but maybe she, she can kind of work out what, you know, may have been a trigger there for her. Um, We also had a really cool one from, now I'm going to struggle with saying the last name here, Our Troy, what do you reckon? I'm going to guess Gakowski. Yeah, okay, much better than me. I won't even go to where I was going. Uh, He said, hi, legends, wanted to drop you a line to say thanks so much for the great podcast. Your unbiased, scientifically backed approach is highly appreciated in this world of misinformation. We are always learning and relearning. So many favourite episodes, but the ones revolving around metabolic efficiency and flexibility are highly valued. I've been binging on the back catalogue of episodes during my current five-day training camps for my Editorod race 
Um, so he's been doing eight hours a day solo on the bike, which gives him plenty of time to listen to valid intel. Events, the event that he's um, going to do is 1,600 kilometres. It's in uh, the Alaska backcountry mid in the middle of winter. Um, he's doing it solo and unsupported on a fat bike. He is carrying everything that he needs for survival. It's a single stage race with no dark zones. He sleeps on snow. It's a 22 days total and he's been racing it since 2013, refining his crafts in winter ultra distance race, racing since then. Uh, and thanks again for the quality info on the podcast. Listen to them more than once, Troy. So our, we think, you know, potentially we'd like to get Troy on uh, the episode to talk about this because I, I think it, mm. you know, be super interesting to see how he tackles his nutrition in this event. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was actually speaking about sort of ultra distance cycling events that go over you know thousands of kilometers and multiple days. I was just on the phone this morning actually to Dr. Stephen Lane, who we had on the podcast earlier this year, yeah. uh, and he's been sort of into the the bike packing and that kind of distance off road racing, and he's just off to South Africa tomorrow. Oh to do a 3,000-kilometre self-supported race over there. So apparently that one goes through towns and things, so you can actually stock up along the way. You don't have to carry your entire supplies with you. Um, But there's some sections, I think, where they head into Namibia. Um, There's some desert and altitude and things where there's much further distances apart, and they do actually have to be self-sufficient for a couple of days there as well. So, Mm. yeah, really cool sort of events that people are getting into. Yeah, yep. Um, and then our any other feedback? No, not particularly. Just I was just speaking to Stephen about um, one of the issues that they get a lot there in um, those sort of ultra distance cycling events is they get a lot of edema, so like swelling of fluid in their hands and feet and things like that. Yeah. So we're just having a bit of a chat about that. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, no. Other than that, not, not a huge amount. How about you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's that's it for me at the moment. But a reminder for our listeners, in terms of social media, they can catch us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. So, yeah, if people do have any questions, which, you know, we've mentioned we've got a good list that is probably going to get us through to the first half of next year hour. But, um, yeah, please still send them through and it might be that we can answer your question earlier than something else because it takes a bit of time to get guests on the on the show sometimes yes definitely and sometimes a question comes up that's really topical and we've got a guest that is happy to go straight away uh, that we're not waiting for a while for and so we actually shuffle that up in the queue as well so don't think that that means you have to wait six or 12 months for the question to be answered it may actually get answered earlier just depending on what we can organize Today's episode, Al? Yeah, episode 47B, how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? And our guest is ultra runner Martijn Dukas. So Martijn is a Dutch ultra runner, uh, previously based in Hong Kong, actually, but he moved to Melbourne at the start of this year. And he has looked at his sodium intake in the past, mostly in the context of cramping, which we'll talk a little bit about, but also, I guess, you know, generally because of the huge the heat and the humidity 
running in Hong Kong, particularly in the, the warmer months over there. And he actually recently took part in the sodium replacement study at Monash, the five-hour treadmill run, and he got to run beside you, actually, Steph. One of your trials overlapped with his, so you are both in the tent there in the heat running together, and so you got to meet Martin there. But today we are going to have a look at, I guess, Martin's perspective on sodium and um, its interaction with fluid and you know, he's running in the heat in Hong Kong, but then also having a look through the data that he obtained from the lab when we did that testing as part of the study. So we'll actually go through his data and interpret it in terms of the suggestions and the sort of the framework that we talked about last week in terms of working out when is sodium replacement actually necessary and if it is, how much needs to be replaced. So we're going to go through that in detail using his specific results as an example. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this one too because I always find it useful with my learning when I've got a practical example. Mm. Um, and I think particularly with this one hour because it is a bit sci- more sciencey and figures are in there, uh, I think this one will be a great one for the listeners to be able to see how they can um, put it uh, into, I guess, more better perspective, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get stuck into this one. Yep, let's do it. Martin Dukus, welcome to The Long Munch. Thanks, Steph and Ellen. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honour to be here. I've been uh, avidly listening and since I uh, found you guys and, and, and learned a lot in the time, so it's, it's an honour to be uh, a guest. Awesome. Um, so you're from the Netherlands originally, but until recently you were living in Hong Kong. So some listeners will be aware in terms of how good the trail running is in Hong Kong. But tell us in regards to your trail running experience over there, what was that like? Yeah, Hong Kong is a place where, you know, as an expat especially, uh, it's, it's very easy to make friends. It's a very compact city. There are plenty of expats. There's always someone open to go for some food, have a drink. Um, and before you know it, it's uh, like you're partying and drinking the night away and you're working long days and it's, it's pretty intense. And this lifestyle also is quite confronting. For instance, after a while, if you look in the mirror, you think, hey, there's two of me. And uh, yeah, that, that happened, to, happened to me as well. To compensate or to find something, an outlet, people go into sports. And one of the most accessible sports in Hong Kong is what you do uh, in the country parks. So a lot of people don't know. People think Hong Kong is, is uh, just buildings, very high buildings and, and loads of people and that's it. But actually around 40% of Hong Kong is designated country park. Yep. And that's scattered all over the city, not just uh, like uh, on, on the outskirts. So a trail is never far away from your doorstep. Many people go for a hike and then another one, and then you get hooked. Basically, that's that's what, what happened to me. But I went on a few hikes, uh, joined a hiking group, starting doing night hikes and weekend hikes. And someone tossed up the idea of doing Oxfam Trail Walker. And that's the biggest event in Hong Kong. It's a yeah. 100-kilometer uh, race, uh, teams of four. It's, it's been around in Hong Kong, I think. It's now global, but it's been around in Hong Kong for more than uh, 30 years now. Um, at first, I was uh, no way, this 100 kilometers, are, are you crazy? But after a while, I started to change my mind, and suddenly I had a goal and I needed a team. 
because the person with the original idea, of course, uh, didn't go anymore. <laughs> but I found a team and um, we trained for it all summer and, and we did the race in November 2011. And that really kicked off my interest in trail running. And, and that's a very common story in Hong Kong. And next to that, the sport has developed and more and more events have been organized in Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah, awesome. And um, you moved to Melbourne in the last year or so. How did you find it in terms of, I guess, adapting to our climate and getting involved in the running community here? Yeah, that, that was a little hard because I went, like I said, uh, Hong Kong is such a compact city and, and meet friends and, and go somewhere is so easy. And then you come into Melbourne and Melbourne is such a not compact city. It's such a <laughs> sprawling city. So the fact that you have to jump into a car to go almost everywhere at first, really, I, I really didn't like that too much. We live in an area uh, called Brighton, which is quite flat. So if I want to see some hills and trails, it, it will also take me maybe 30, 40 minutes of, of drive there and the same back. So that, that's quite a big change from, from what I was used to. At the same time, the space and, and the calmness for my son, to the, the ability to have uh, super playgrounds everywhere uh, is, is also very, very good. And when you talk about climate, the, the winter it was uh, for me, if you look at the temperature, official temperature, it doesn't look that cold. But then if you add the, the wind, it felt really, really cold and <laughs> I wasn't very, very um, enjoying it very much. Um, in terms of running, I joined the Evolve Running Club. Uh, my coach, uh, Simone Breck, uh, is there, who is very supportive. And uh, Dion, who's the main guy at Evolve, He's not only the 100k Australian champion, but he's also a great and humble guy and really welcoming. To be honest, lifestyle is, is also a big factor. When I came into Hong Kong, I was alone and I could do just anything whenever I wanted. <laughs> now I'm, I'm married, have, have a, a toddler. Life is a little bit different. I can't just uh, spend the whole day doing whatever I like. So that has an impact as well on, on how... how uh, what sort of opportunities uh, I have in, in Melbourne. Mm, yep, yep. And um, I had the pleasure of running with you in Alan's sodium replacement study at Monash Uni. Um, how was that experience running for five hours on a treadmill? Did you find it more exciting than what I did? Not as cold as outside in the Melbourne winter and the, the wind out there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was actually complaining that it, it wasn't really hot. <laughs> <laughs> because yes. I'm, I'm used to hot and humid. So mm. even though the temperature says uh, 30, 35 degrees, it, it obviously feels uh, a lot more hot in, in the hot of, in the heat of, of Hong Kong. Um, to be honest, the, the five hours, and, and I, I did it twice, obviously, so it was 10 hours. Um, the running itself, I didn't find it too bad because with, uh, you, you know, you can just distract yourself. Uh, I had Netflix. I think I was a little bit better prepared than you, Steph. And, uh, <laughs> and then, um, no, I, I chatted a bit uh, with you and with Alan. And, and before you know it, the time was over. Um, also because there was a lot of interruptions with the blood taking and, and the, the measurements, etc. So. Um, for someone who, who's used to run ultras and, and I, I used to go uh, on long day hikes the whole day, etc. So it didn't feel 
that extreme. But um, of course, because I really started from nothing or nothing, mm -hmm. I, I didn't do anything for like six weeks. Um, and then I started preparing for, for this, uh, this trial. It, it was a little bit hard for the five hours so I, because I was just not that trained that well. But otherwise, I actually kind of enjoyed it. And, and even, um, yeah, the whole process was actually interesting because I learned quite a lot. Um, first of all, the, the, the diet, the food that you get on forehand, it was so much, but it did make <laughs> me think, <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not eating enough carbs. And then I started, of course, I was listening to your podcast as well. So I was thinking, okay, maybe I need to work on that. Um, and the second time, so the first time around, I really struggled with the food, but the second time around, I, I managed, managed to do a little bit better. Um, yeah. Otherwise during, during the five hours, I, I was fine up to like three and a half hours. And then I started to fall apart a little bit. And, um, I agree with Ellen that I could slow the pace slightly for the last 20 minutes, just to make sure that I make it to the end. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it sounds terrible, but if, if you make sure you can be distracted, it's actually not that bad. Yeah. All right. I'll clip up that first part of that, Martin. So the next time we do a five hour running study, I'll play that to people who say how bad it's going to be and how terrible it is. And it's not that bad. It's, yeah. <laughs> Manage expectations though. You, you shouldn't say it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It helps to go into it with the mindset that, oh, it's going to be terrible. And then you're doing it in this <laughs> It's not that yep. bad. <laughs> so boring. You're just staring at a wall for five hours. That's it. Yeah. All right. So our question today is how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? So I guess to start off with that, we'll, we'll get into obviously, you know, what you did in the lab and, you know, some of those results and what they mean and, and I guess what that means to you now having had time to kind of digest all of that. But I guess before we get to that, Prior to this study, what were kind of your, your thoughts around sodium during exercise and, and how has that maybe changed over time? I'm guessing living in a pretty hot and humid environment like Hong Kong, it's probably something that you, you did spend a bit of time thinking about. You would say so, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I've, I've, I haven't really been thinking about it too structurally, but basically when I came to Hong Kong in 2010, and like I said, somebody took me into Oxfam Trailwalker and then I started you know, as you do, you start Googling and saying, who's doing this type of stuff? And, and what kind of crazy races are there around? And then I started getting into stories about um, the American um, scene. And you, you go to these these message boards and stuff like that. And, and then I read a lot about um, the capsules, the salt uh, capsules, and how you should take one every I don't remember anymore, but it's probably every one hour or every half hour or whatever they said. So early on, that was sort of um, helping me think, okay, I do need electrolytes. I do need uh, salt. How do I get it in? So I, I got those salt uh, capsules and I was using them, but I didn't really know why I needed to take it uh, and what it did to my body. And I think I, at the time I mostly linked it to cramp and also in in hong kong um a lot of the trails are are, are a lot of stairs so um you, you use certain muscles that you normally don't use that much so 
I experienced quite a lot of cramps. Uh, oh yeah, let me add the heat as well. So the heat is, is also affected. Mm. So I experienced quite a lot of a lot of um, cramps. So I thought maybe if I if I fixed um, my sodium intake, it will also sort out the cramps. But I still vividly remember this night run, and I had set it to myself to to sort of set a record on on this specific part, which was a lot of stairs uh, up and down two hills, and I was towards the end on the downhill, suddenly I was completely stuck because I was in cramp. I couldn't move anymore. I said, like, okay, let me take a salt pill and it will be solved. And I took it and it didn't do anything. And then, okay, let me try another one. <laughs> I took another one. It still didn't do anything. So that started to make me think, okay, maybe this salt pill is not really doing anything for a cramp. Similar timing, I came across um, Noakes and his book waterlocked but i came across interpretations of of that yeah and um as you're well aware in that book he describes how you should drink to thirst and um i think he also sort of says you don't really need electrolytes yeah so i decided for myself maybe i should try that maybe it's it's all a bit of a hoax like a way to sell stuff um yeah i sort of stopped focusing on it. I, it's not that I purposely did not take it. Sometimes I would have products that would have it in it anyway, but I wasn't taking any salt pills. I wasn't taking any uh, other products that are specifically for electrolytes, etc. And um, I didn't really notice much of a difference. So yeah, that's, that's how I carried on uh, for a while. I still had the cramping problems. Um, I thought it, I just need to work on my strength and just need to work on my pacing. My pacing was, was pretty bad. I usually went off too fast and, and fell apart. So for a long time, that's sort of how, how I went about um, sodium. However, in 2020, and for the Hong Kong 100, um, so the Hong Kong 100 is a big race in, in Hong Kong, which attracts an international um, group of people. And Ragnar Debets came came to town for the Hong Kong 100. Ragnar Debets is, is a Dutch lady. Um, and she was in 2018 uh, the world champion of trail running. I offered her to, to help her out. And, and one of the things I did during her race was, was crew her on, on, uh, on a particular point. And one of the instructions I had was put a salt pill in my mouth every time I see you, because that's... Uh, that's I can then add the water and then the, the pill is gone. And it started me thinking, it's like, okay, why are these elite people still using salt pills when there's all these stories about you don't need it and, and why would you even bother? So that sort of planted the seed that I started thinking, mm, yeah, maybe there's something in it. But then in June 2020, Alan, you were on a podcast of Jason Cook. Uh, Jason mm -hmm. Cook is a famous... Um, ultra running coach and um he has a podcast very good podcast i think and and he has often um scientists on there talking about specific things so i think you were there about talking about uh, training and nutrition for hot environments and of course sodium came up two episodes later there was a podcast with um andy blow mm -hmm. um and andy blow he has a product um to sell and he claimed that using a lot of more sodium would help your performance in the heat. And the way he described that was that, yeah, if you use a lot more sodiums, 
you can keep up your performance in the heat rather than uh, falling apart. And that resonated with me because I tend to fall apart in the heat. I, I do pretty reasonable in, when it's cool, but then when it's hot, I, I feel like I'm falling apart. So that made me think. And because I had a, a personal challenge at the end of August that year, I thought, let me give that a try. So I started putting a lot more sodium in my, uh, in my drinks. Uh, I got a product with, uh, yeah, that, that allowed me to, uh, as a powder, that allowed me to put it in my drink. And then I started using that more and more. And that personal challenge at the end of August was um, doing the hill near my house uh, 10 times. So it was a 6K loop. The hill was about 300 meter climb. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a decent challenge, but because it was hot and in, in summer, um, it was for me, it was really, really a tough challenge. Um, during that challenge, I tried to keep it up, but, um, I got a bit overwhelmed early on and then I had to manage it and, and just try anything I could try just to, to go through. Um, the whole challenge. I think um, Steph will know how that works in an ultra. You, you, know, you follow the script for a while and suddenly everything falls apart and then you just try to manage yourself to get to the finish. Ultimately, I can't say whether it worked or not to add more sodium uh, to my diet. And yeah, I think that's where I'm now is I'm back to thinking, uh, should I need it? Should I not need it? Um, and that's why it was very interesting when I saw the recruitment from uh, Monash to, to do this test. And I saw your name, Alan, and I thought, oh, yeah, he was on the podcast and he was talking about it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think this is an area, and I think we talked about this on the podcast last week, Steph, that both hydration and sodium have traditionally been very polarised areas. It's been very much, or it's kind of been made out that you're either pro, you know, lots of electrolytes or lots of fluid, or you're against that. And it's, you know, people almost drive a wedge down the middle and say you're either, you know, consumed with corporate interest or you're the people fighting back against the corporate interest kind of thing. And and I think it's been a really unhelpful way to look at it. And it's been very confusing for people because of this kind of polarization. And, and hopefully what we're going to get to today and, and a little bit from last week is that there is probably a role for sodium in some circumstances and less so in potentially other circumstances as well and it's not a an all or nothing kind of approach to it well let's have a look now at your sodium losses and obviously we calculated that when you came into the lab and did the study um had you ever done that kind of sort of testing before to try and quantify sort of your sodium losses no no, no. never done one before okay. no all right, so if we have a look at your results, um, and these are the values that we got from the actual sweat patches themselves. So just to explain to, to listeners, as part of the study, we put some sweat patches on. In, in this study, it was on the forearm, on the right-hand side, and also the mid-thigh, so basically halfway between your hip and your knee on the, the front of your thigh there. And obviously, those patches absorb sweat as you're exercising. We can take those patches off after a period of time. Um, extract the sweat from them and then measure the, the sodium concentration in that. So the forearm patch, um, so you did obviously, as you said before, the two different trials, but we also put patches on in the first hour, well, uh, half an hour in, 
uh, just to get your body temperature up and your, your sweat glands staying to go. Um, so that first section of exercise and then in the last hour of exercise. And so if we look across those four measurements. So we did that obviously in the two trials. Your forearm sweat sodium concentration was between 94 and 113 millimoles per liter. Or if you think about it more in terms of milligrams per liter, um, 2,162 to 2,600 milligrams per liter. So relatively high, and we'll explain the significance of that in a moment. And then the thigh value was quite a bit lower. It was between 56 and 76 millimoles per liter, or 1,290 to 1,750 milligrams per liter. Now, as we mentioned on the episode last week, it's one thing to take a patch value and actually measure the sodium concentration from that, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the overall sweat sodium concentration if you were to capture sweat from the entire body, which obviously is the most important thing. So there are equations to estimate that based on the patches. And when we do that, it gives you an estimated whole body sweat sodium concentration of about 60 millimoles per litre for those earlier patches in the five hours and about 70 millimoles towards the end of that five hour run, which is about uh, 1380 to 1610 milligrams per litre. And that's still well above average for most people. And you would have seen on the report that we sent you, Martin, that your sweat sodium concentration was quite a bit higher than other people that we've had through the lab. Uh, and then obviously that's the, the sodium loss per litre of sweat, but we need to think also in the context of well, how much sweat are you losing as well. So your sweat rate in this study was about 1,000 to 1,150 mils an hour, and that was running at 9.5 kilometres an hour in 30-degree heat and about 35% relative humidity. So you put all of that together, and that gives you an hourly sodium loss of about 1,600 to 1,700 milligrams per hour. So when you started to see results like that come through, Martin, after you'd finished the study, was there anything that um, surprised you about that? It had to be what you expected or you'd not gone in with really any sort of preconceived ideas about what you were likely to find? Yeah, uh, especially on the sodium side, I, I really had no idea uh, what to expect. Um, I felt myself that once... Once I stopped taking capsules and, and basically, like I said, I didn't really take much electrolytes for, for a while, that my sweat wasn't that salty mm -hmm. and um, I didn't have those those uh, salt cakes on, on my clothes anymore, mm -hmm. etc. I felt like maybe it, it's not that much that, that I do. Um, but on, on, on the hydration side, I, I knew I'm, I'm sweating. I was always sweating a lot. So, so that wasn't really... Um, really uh, surprised but um yeah still the fact that i seem to be on, on the extreme for both is is uh yeah it's a, <laughs> it's a bit a uh, bit of a surprise yeah 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 and i mean the, the 1100 mils an hour probably doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people there um but i guess we've got to bear in mind that we're thinking about ultra running pace so you're not running at you know half marathon pace your sweat rate probably would have been you know two liters an hour or something because of the heat production being obviously a lot higher um and yes you're in 30 degree heat but the humidity was relatively low you had a fan there to kind of simulate the airflow which is then evaporating and cooling you down a little bit so yeah i mean i think that's still towards the upper end of, of most of the people that we see in the lab doing that kind of exercise in those kind of conditions yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's, I guess, take a look at the modelling data from Alan's study now, which I know you got feedback on from your own sweat testing results. 
Firstly, uh, can you talk us through the data in a bit more detail? Yeah, so you'll recall from last week, we discussed that you know, sodium requirements during exercise, if we think about why we are replacing sodium, what we're trying to achieve, ultimately probably what we're trying to achieve is stability in the blood sodium concentration. So we know that obviously there can be a flavour component, but that's got nothing to do with sweat losses. We know that the impact of sodium on fluid absorption from the gut is quite minimal, so it's probably not something we need to worry about. Uh, we know that, as far as we can tell, there's no specific sort of sodium depletion, quote unquote, that's going to cause a problem. So it's more about, you know, the sodium requirement during exercise is about balancing the fluid turnover during exercise. So obviously you lose a certain amount of fluid, you drink a certain amount of that back. And we know that if you don't drink that much fluid back, and you mentioned before, Martin, that kind of drink to thirst approach, generally you won't tend to drink as much fluid in that scenario. It is a bit different from person to person, but for most people, that's probably a, a reasonable generalization. So in that case, you're going to lose some fluid overall. You know, you're going to become a little bit dehydrated and Obviously, you know, you can argue about how much is too much in terms of dehydration. But when that happens, your blood sodium concentration goes up because your body saves some of that sodium back in through the sweat glands as you're losing the fluid. So it's really, if we are to balance the fluid turnover, it's only once we start pretty aggressively hydrating, you know, replacing kind of 70% of your fluid losses or more that you start to need sodium to balance that because if you're drinking less than that, your blood sodium is going up, not down. It's not until about that 70% mark where if you're just drinking plain water, the blood sodium is going to start to fall. And so we actually need some sodium to kind of offset that and, and balance and keep that plasma sodium and, and osmolality stable. So we not only need to know Martin's sweat rate for this, which we described before as about you know 1050 to 1150 mils an hour under those conditions, but we need to know his drinking rate as well how much fluid is he actually replacing and is he replacing enough fluid to actually need to take sodium and balance the two. So Martin's drinking rate, this study was uh, a little bit unique in that most studies looking at sodium give a fixed amount of fluid. And so they want to alter the sodium but not alter the fluid. But in this study, we deliberately allowed the fluid to go up and down according to what people felt like drinking on the day because what we wanted to see was that when they replace the sodium, does it change the amount of fluid that they're naturally inclined to drink compared to when we don't give them sodium? So Martin's drinking rate in this study obviously varied between the two trials, uh, but not, not by that much. So it was about 390 to 470 mils an hour. And that's against a sweat rate of you know over a litre an hour. So really he was only replacing about 35 to 40% of his fluid losses in both of those trials. So if it's a shorter event, like you know, the half marathon he's just done, that would be adequate to prevent, you know, a large fluid deficit. It probably wouldn't be a big deal. Um, but in this case, we were running for five hours. And over that five hours, Martin lost just under 5% of his body mass. Um, a little bit of that will be, you know, body fat that is then being used as a fuel source, some of the carbohydrate that's stored in his muscles being used up. So there is a little bit of that that is uh, weight loss that's not fluid, but the vast majority of that will actually be fluid loss. So it's quite a considerable, I guess, body mass loss in percentage terms. Yeah. Yeah. And Martin, was this a surprise to you that your fluid replacement was quite low and your body mass loss so high? Um, yeah, well, for this, for this, um, exercise, yes, because I, I really felt that I was actually drinking quite a bit. <laughs> I, I, I didn't feel thirsty at all. Um, so I think 
part of that might be that I, I'm I I am trained that way. Um, I felt comfortable going out on the trail with just limited water, knowing I would be able to make a make it to a water stop, even if it took a while, without falling apart. Uh, as I said before, in in ultra, you you learn how to to manage yourself and with whatever the circumstances are. So even if you're thirsty or even if you're 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 getting hot, um, you just take one step after another. And in Hong Kong, the comfort is that water is never that far away. So as long as you know, okay, here's a Seven Eleven, there's a gas station, uh, maybe there's some natural water out of out of the mountain. As long as I can make it there, it's fine. So, um, so that's that's how I, I, I trained for quite a long time. And again, based on Noakes, I, I for a long time I just drink to thirst, and and I don't really uh, make make a plan. Mm -hmm. But so what the outcome of the sweat test does explain quite a bit is is why I suddenly sometimes suddenly fall apart in races. I think I, I just must always drink way too little. Um, mm. And I do remember after the races, sometimes weighing myself thinking, well, that's quite low. And then I was drinking and then it got back to, to where, where it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have it in the test, but in, in real life, I, I do have a lot of uh, taste fatigue, especially with water, especially when it starts to become warm. And also um, taste fatigue with with uh, sweet, for instance. So if I would drink sports drinks, then some days I can't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. So it does make me think: if I take more sodium, would it help me to take more fluid? But then one of the two tests was actually with sodium, and I think fluid intake wasn't that much different. So maybe maybe that that doesn't help, and it I just need to plan more to to take drinks. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, yeah, the you were going more according to thirst and you didn't really feel all that thirsty. So that influenced yeah. how much you were getting in. It wasn't really a matter of um, you not being able to potentially tolerate a bigger amount. No, no, not at all. I, I just felt, I actually, <laughs> I think I honestly felt I was drinking quite a bit. More, um, yeah. Because if I go out, I just have the water with me that I have with me. So it's not like yeah. I can drink more. And now the water was available all the time and yeah. I could grab it, but I didn't feel yeah. like I needed to. Needed it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Al, at this drinking rate, losing 1,600 to 1,700 milligrams an hour of sodium, how much sodium does Martine actually need to replace? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing because he's only replacing sort of 30 to 45% of his fluid losses. In fact, his blood sodium is going up. Now, we haven't actually got those blood samples analysed yet. I'm actually going to do that tomorrow, taking off to another lab to get that done. But uh, I suspect what, when those come back, what we're going to see is his blood sodium goes up in both trials. Um, so in this case, actually, there's no need to replace any sodium during exercise. So what this is saying probably is, and I think some people would traditionally go, oh, I'm not getting enough sodium during exercise. I've got these big losses. I need to replace it. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the issue here is probably a lack of fluid. Now, if that can be addressed and, and Martin does consume more fluid, he may then get to the stage where sodium becomes important to balance that extra fluid that he's drinking. But at this current fluid intake, 
it actually is just going to make his blood sodium go even higher than it already is, probably make him even more thirsty, which may be actually a little bit helpful here. Um, but there is some suggestion from sort of the, the thermal physiologists who do research in that area that if you send your blood sodium too high, it actually starts to reduce your sweat rate and therefore impairs your ability to cool your body during exercise as well. So yes, having a bit of sodium and maybe running that a tiny bit high might be useful from a thirst perspective. But if we do that too high and too long, it actually might impair our ability to manage our body temperature a little bit as well. So yeah, it, it's an interesting one. So I think the, the priority here, looking at those two bits of combined data, the sodium losses and the fluid turnover, is to address the fluid turnover first. And then if that sort of comes up, then look at the sodium side of things. Yeah, yeah. And um, it sounds like, Martine, that you could probably drink more if you wanted to, like you thought you were drinking quite a bit. If you were then given advice to drink more, um, do you think you would be able to um, tolerate that? I think so, um, especially early on, uh, how, how it will be later when, with, uh, when the, uh, the taste fatigue kicks in. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been through ultras where I, I really felt I can't get anything in and, and I can't handle this water again. So I think it might the dehydration might have been even more extreme uh, at mm -hmm. that stage. But um, currently, when when uh, when I do my training, I, I do drink more water and uh, I do make sure that I carry more. And uh, for example, um, with Evolve, we sometimes go on a group run. Most people don't carry anything, mm. but uh, I was carrying uh, 1.2 liters just after learning from, from this exercise that I, I do lose uh, quite a bit, I think um, keeping it, keeping the, the, the hydration up, up to a good level is probably going to help me perform better rather than allowing me to, to get dehydrated uh, so much. Mm, yep. And good gut training too. I started that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and at what point, um, L, um, of fluid replacement, would Martine's blood sodium start going down rather than going up and therefore start to benefit from replacing sodium? Yeah, so I had a, a look back through this data and given that, that Martine's whole body estimated sweat sodium concentration is higher than the average person, mm -hmm. so most people would be around sort of 35, 40-ish millimoles per litre, he was around sort of 60 to 70 and at the five, like the last hour of the five hours, if you think about ultra running, that probably is more representative of most of the race rather than that that first one mm. that we took. So that's around the 70 millimoles per litre, which is very high compared to average. Um, so at that, that sweat sodium concentration, the blood sodium would start to fall once he re starts replacing more than about 55 to 60% of his fluid losses which yeah. is about 600 mils an hour of fluid intake based on the sweat rate that we measured on that day. And obviously different events, you'll have different sweat rates. Um, but even then, the amount of sodium that you need is very small. It's you know, less than 150 milligrams an hour there. So you could argue, you know, if he's only replacing around that kind of 55, 60% of fluid losses, probably just choosing foods and fluids that are a bit saltier 
and based on taste preferences would probably get you to that 150 milligrams an hour pretty comfortably. It's only when he starts to drink sort of, you know, seven, eight, 900 mils an hour that actually you might need to be a bit more purposeful with that and, and deliberately plan out a specific amount of sodium to take. So I guess if we look at that, yeah, the 70% fluid replacement, as I suggested last week, is kind of a, a general rule of thumb. So that's about 770 mils an hour for Martin. At that point, with his sweat sodium concentration, he'd need probably just over 30% sodium replacement, which based on those losses that we measured is about 525 milligrams an hour. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I think one of the things that we don't really know yet because it hasn't really been researched at all, or not not well and not often, is as events get longer, you know, theoretically you have to get closer and closer to 100% fluid replacement to prevent severe dehydration, because severe dehydration is kind of in absolute terms. You know, it's a certain percentage of your, your body mass, which is fixed at the start of exercise. And so, you know, you don't want to lose whether it's, you know, different people, might be one and a half kilos, two and a half kilos, depending on the person, depending on what percentage cutoff you want to use. But if we think about that, you know, the longer the exercise goes, the closer to 100% replacement you have to get to stop from falling below that. But I guess the interesting thing is that we don't really have much research that looks at whether that actually happens when people drink to thirst. So as the events get longer, you go to ultra distance races and people, quote unquote, drink to thirst, do they get closer to the 100% when they probably don't in the shorter events where we actually have data for. And, and that's because generally in research, it's really hard to do. Like it's hard to measure someone's actual sweat losses in an ultra marathon, and it's hard to measure all the fluid they consumed in that ultra marathon. Like to follow people around and measure all that stuff would be really difficult. And so what people generally default to do is turning up to a race with a set of scales and a clipboard and measuring their weight before and after, which tells you the net fluid balance but as I said last week, it doesn't tell you how you got to that net fluid balance. Did you have a large, you know, sweat loss mm. and you replaced most of it? Or did you have a small sweat loss and you didn't have to replace as much? So it's an interesting one and, and one that we don't know for sure. Yeah, and, and obviously also during such a race, your, your pace will be uh, variable. Mm. The weather will be variable because yep. uh, mm. you go through the night, so it's cooler. Totally, um, yep. And I also... I've also seen instances where I just start to sweat less. So I, I sweat a lot in, in, in the first two hours and then slowly start to sweat less. So yeah, I'm not sure what comes first, the dehydration and you reduce the sweating or the other way around. But um, mm. yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it could be related to pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it could pace be related well, to yeah. pace. As you, know, as you said, if you tend to go out hard at the start, Obviously, you're going to be producing more body heat, and so you're going to need to sweat more. And then, as the pace kind of settles down in the middle stage of the race, you put, you know your body heat production drops a little bit, and so your sweat rate will drop a little bit. And as you said, if it goes overnight, that'll drop even further. Um, but you know, if you do become dehydrated, you know your plasma sodium, and therefore the osmolality comes up. And as I said before, like the thermal physiologists that do that kind of pure physiology research show that you know as that osmolality goes up it'll actually start to impact on reducing your sweat rate as well. And I guess that's the body's way of saying, well, I'm becoming dehydrated. I need to lose some fluid onto my skin to cool me down, but I don't want to lose too much because I'm then going to die of dehydration before I die of heat exhaustion. Mm. Yeah. And out, out of interest, how much would that cut off for needing sodium change if Martin's sweat sodium concentration was higher or lower yeah 
Okay, so if his sweat sodium concentration was quite low, and when I say low, probably about 20 millimoles per litre or about 460 milligrams per litre of sodium, then his need for sodium, you know, at that point where the blood sodium stops going up and starts going down, wouldn't kick in until he's replacing about 85 to 90% of his fluid losses, which is sort of 900 mils an hour plus based on that sweat rate from that study. If he was kind of in the average, where I guess the majority of people will fall, so his sweat sodium was around sort of 40 millimoles per litre, was about 920 milligrams per litre, then that need for sodium, you know, where the blood sodium starts going down instead of up, will kick in at about 75 to 80% of fluid replacement, which, again, using that example, over 800 mils an hour. Um, and then... If it was even higher than we measured, so we measured around the 70 millimoles per litre, but if it was at the extreme end, so 80, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone get up there, I think 73 is about the highest I've seen. I've heard a couple of people find ones with 80 as a whole body value, but it's pretty rare. Um, that's 1,840 milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat. Then the need for sodium to stop the blood sodium falling kicks in quite a bit earlier at about 45 to 50% of fluid replacement or about 500 mils an hour of drinking rate. Um, but as I said, that's that's very rare. And even then, the amount of sodium you need in percentage terms is quite small. It would be you know, probably more around that 60, 70% before the need for a significant amount of sodium replacement would really creep up. Yeah. And okay, so I guess um, wrapping all of this up, um, Martin, what did you learn from the testing data that you feel now that you can apply to your training or, you know, your races? I think the biggest things I've learned is I need to eat more, I need to drink more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, on the sodium side, I think the biggest lesson is I probably should have some. Mm -hmm. And it definitely wouldn't hurt to have some. Yep. I don't think I need to put in a lot. The only thing is maybe the taste fatigue, maybe it would help to have more sodium. Yeah. But, yeah. And now, is that a good sort of summary <laughs> wrap up for Martin? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, we can't underestimate that taste fatigue side of things as well. And the use of sodium from its flavor perspective, as opposed to a physiological what's going on in the blood perspective. And as we said last week, they're really the two reasons that we have pretty good scientific evidence that there might be a need for sodium. I guess on the one hand, we've got you know what's going on in the blood and, and balancing the water with the sodium, where you're getting scientific in terms of working out you know, how much sodium based on how much water. And obviously that only applies when you're drinking a certain amount of water and that's more so the ultra distance stuff where that actually matters but i guess the other one around the taste fatigue or just you know personal taste preferences that's got nothing to do with sweat losses it's just to do with you know what you like and and how you make that up so yeah i, I think that's absolutely fine and, and i think i said last week as well like even if you're in those categories where you technically don't need any sodium to balance your fluid replacement it doesn't necessarily mean you should deliberately avoid sodium. It just means that you, you know, quote unquote, season to taste. You just adjust the flavor of your products using sodium as obviously one side of that versus maybe sweetness from your carbohydrate on the other side to find that kind of point that you like and um, you're going to enjoy what you're eating and drinking or at least not really dislike it. 
All right, well, let's get into our bonus round now, Martin, where we find out a little bit more about you. Um, so our first question, what surprised you most about moving to Australia? Yeah, as I, I already mentioned a little bit, but the, the cold winter, just how cold it is. Um, if you see the average temperature, you think, oh, it's not too bad. But then when you're actually here and and you, you feel the wind, the wind is a, is, is a big thing here. Yeah. Um, then uh, the, the impact of the wind was quite big. And then especially also that I'm surprised that the housing, and I've seen some in the newspapers as well about it, the housing is not really well prepared to deal with a very cold winter. Mm. Yeah, mm. which is ironic because we've had it ever since we've been here. So, um, yeah. yeah, I would have thought you'd be used to the wind coming from the Netherlands, but I guess it's been a while since you lived there. In the Netherlands, you go into your home; it's nice and warm, and and you're yeah. back good. <laughs> yeah. And and yep. but also, I, I don't think we have such a cold wind. Yeah. Okay. I think the wind is a lot colder. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, what's a race that you've always wanted to run, but you've never had the chance? Yeah, there's quite a lot of them, but if if I would think of the pinnacle, um, it would probably be the Hard Rock 100. Yep. Nice. Awesome. Um, and Besides running the hard rock, is there another sport that you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance? Yeah, it's it's not really that I hadn't had the chance to cycle. I grew up cycling in, in, in the Netherlands. We do everything cycling. So, <laughs> But um, I also grew up hearing about the Tour de France, seeing the mountains. And um, yeah, basically I was always dreaming of being a cyclist. And I've never really had the chance to really go on a cycling tour or being part of a cycling group and uh, i think that's that's something the first thing i would think about okay that's a sport i would maybe want to pick up here in melbourne as well because there's a lot of cycling around mm. um i just need to get a bike yep which i haven't there done yet <laughs> all right so is anyone listening out there can help martin out with what to get in terms <laughs> of bikes and and group rides to go on we'll uh, we'll get you going um your best sporting moment in 2022 so far? My mind immediately went to to the day that Jumbo Visma uh, attacked um, Pogacar in the tour. But to be honest, um, one thing I've been following a little bit for a while in, in the Netherlands is this Dutch runner, uh, Nienke Brinkman. And she's doing some amazing things this year. She, she only started running during COVID hmm. and, and realized she's actually a pretty good marathon runner. So she ran uh, a 226 marathon uh, last year wow. and then got picked up by the NN team. Mm -hmm. The NN team is the team of uh, Elliot Kupchoke. Yep. And uh, then she went to Rotterdam and she set the Dutch record in 222. <laughs> so wow. that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But what's even more amazing is that next to that, she's still trail running because she really wow. liked trail running when she picked that up. Mm. So she won the Zegema Pikes Peak Ascent and Flagstaff Sky Race, and she's now the leader in the Golden Trail Series. So next to being an awesome marathon mm. person and someone to watch in, in Paris, she's also doing this trail race. So it, it was really, uh, really cool to see this year. Yeah, yeah. And your coach Simone's been over there doing the uh, Golden Trail Series as well, I think. Yeah, I said to Simone, wow, you're just, you're just running... At first, she was running with the goat of, of, of ultra running, which is Courtney DeWalter. Mm -hmm. And then she also was running with Nink. I said, well, you're, you're running with all my my uh, my big favorites in, in the sport. 
Yeah. Mm. Awesome. All right. And final question. Do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Um, yeah, I was trying to think back of this piece of advice motto that I had at work for a long time. I couldn't find it back anymore, but what it sort of comes down to, and, and luckily you hear more and more, is that you should focus and enjoy the process and outcomes are just a blip on the horizon and shouldn't be defining. I'd love to say I totally live by it. It's probably not the case. For instance, I was quite disappointed not to run the marathon the other day, but I should have just enjoyed uh, the training for the marathon. But ultimately, I think if you get that in your life more and more, then um, yeah. you'll be a, a happier, more fulfilled person. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you say that because we had word very differently, but almost exactly the same sentiment in one of our very earliest podcasts, Steph, I'm going to say episode 5B or 4B with Jess Stenson who said something very similar. And I think it is one of those things that, you know, particularly for the lead athletes is that um, mentality that a lot of people are trying to get to is, you know, to be focused on the process and let the outcome kind of take care of itself. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think the Bar Barty, um, the tennis player, mm -hmm. she mentioned something like that. So, yeah. Barty, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Said, if I don't enjoy the process anymore, then what's I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Martin. It's uh, great to, to catch up with you. And um, hopefully this has been useful for people, I guess, to, to have a look at your data and I guess the process of working through sort of the fluid and the sodium and how they work together to kind of determine the need for sodium during exercise. Hope it's been a useful process for you as well. And and something that you can take away, you know, your own personal data from that study to, to use in your own running. And obviously, you know, Steph and I being researchers, we're so grateful for people like yourselves giving up your time and your blood, sweat and urine to come in and um, give us some data to help us answer some interesting questions in the lab. So, again, thank you very much for your, your contribution to the research as well. Yeah, it was great to do it. It's great to be a guest on your podcast and uh, keep up the great episodes. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. That was great. Thank you very much, Martine and Al, um, for both contributing to, to this episode. And uh, now I will leave it to the one and only Alan McKelvin to wrap up this episode and last week's episode. Yeah, so I guess our question was, you know, how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? And, you know, it's often claimed that sodium is essential for performing, particularly in hot weather. Uh, and to some degree that would be true, but that's provided that you drink the fluid volume to go along with the sodium. And we discussed last week that, you know, from all that modelling data, it becomes pretty clear that sodium needs to be in balance with the water ins and outs of the body. And that if you take, you know, you replace your sodium completely in isolation to what you're doing on the hydration side of things in terms of your fluid volume, you're going to end up with a potential mismatch there. And that's not helpful either. And I think that's been the traditional approach. They've kind of most people see sodium as kind of a completely separate thing that you lose a certain amount and you need to replace a certain amount of that. But until you consider how the water's being replaced, you really can't make good decisions about the sodium side of things. Uh, but having said all of that, I think the other thing that comes out, and, and we'll go through some numbers of this in a minute, but the amount of sodium required to take during exercise is probably a lot less than is often suggested or people would naturally think that you need based on the amount that you lose. And it's not really required in a significant 
quantity until you actually replace a significant amount of the fluid. So, you know, Martin's example, I think, is a really good one. He sort of thought, or maybe there's a sodium issue here. But when we did the testing, actually, what we found is his biggest issue is actually he's not drinking enough fluid. So he's having these sort of, uh, you know, where his race falls apart, where he suspects now that it actually might be due to the fact that he's not drinking enough fluid. His thirst not sort of prompting him to drink enough. And then, you know, if he does drink enough, then the sodium becomes important, but he needs to be able to drink enough before he needs to worry about the sodium. So I guess for those of out there who think, I guess, that they are quote unquote salty sweaters, and that might be based on, you know, the taste of your sweat uh, as it dribbles down your face or, you know, having salt crusts that dry out on your skin or your clothing. Uh, and I always make the caveat there that if you're a triathlete and you say, oh, I've got really salty sweat because I've got all these salt stains over my body, I'd say, well, you've been swimming in salty water and if that dried out onto your skin of course you're going to have a salt crust there and also you know sometimes it might be because you wore the black t-shirt this week and the white t-shirt last week and therefore you had a salt crust that was visible this week where you couldn't see it last week so there are some caveats around that obviously it's a, a not very quantitative approach to your sweat sodium losses but assuming that you know you are someone who has fairly salty sweat you're aggressively replacing that sodium without increasing your fluid replacement may end up with excessive sodium intake you're over replacing sodium uh, relative to water so if that happens then you know that might maintain a little bit of the blood volume compared to taking no sodium at all because it's going to change the shift of water between the inside and the outside of the cells but it is at the expense of it's going to steal water from the cells to be able to do that. So you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, and there's a risk of, um, as I mentioned this week, you know, potentially impaired sweat response is what some of the thermal physiologists see in their studies. Now, we know that blood sodium and therefore the osmolality in the blood generally goes up even if no sodium is consumed during exercise because you're losing fluid some of the sodium you recapture through the sweat glands, whereas you don't recapture the water because it's required for evaporation to cool you down and so your blood sodium and your osmolality goes up it's not uh, we know the flip side to that is if you over drink during exercise it will definitely go down and that's what causes hyponatremia but there's going to be a, a tipping point in the middle where you go from the blood sodium going up to where it turns around and starts going down again and that tipping point from this modeling data seems to be at about 70% of fluid replacement in other words drinking about 70% of what you're sweating out in terms of fluid volume now, obviously, no one recommends overdrinking, you know, drinking more than 100% of your fluid losses during exercise, but drinking between 70 to 100% is where that sodium may well play a role in balancing the water intake to maintain that steady osmolality and also retain that fluid in the blood and in the body generally, so you're not peeing it out either. Now, I guess that comes down to how do you decide whether this is actually a relevant thing for you? How do you know if drinking 70% or more of your fluid losses actually matters? So I guess the way I think about it, and I've kind of refined this a little bit even since last week as I've been putting together a conference presentation, is sort of three questions. And you've got to answer sort of yes to all three questions for this to be relevant. If you get a no to any of them, then probably you just need to season to taste with your sodium and just consume based on your, your food and flavour preferences. But the first question is, is replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses likely to be beneficial for you in terms of your race performance? So as we discussed last week, the longer the event goes, the greater the total sweat loss in like the total number of litres of sweat that you're going to lose, 
which obviously then makes it more important because you have to replace a higher percentage of that loss to stay within that sort of band of not becoming dehydrated. And generally speaking, if your exercise duration is less than four hours, it's very unlikely that you're ever going to need to get to that sort of 70% or more fluid replacement unless you have really extreme sweat rates, which is very unusual. I, I had a bit of a play around with this over the weekend, actually looking at different scenarios and looking at that total sort of accumulated fluid loss. Um, and it seems to be probably somewhere around the six litre mark. So if you project that you're going to lose more than six litres from start to finish of your event, then probably, yes, you know, replacing more than 70% starts to become relevant to you. So if you think about it, you know, if you have a sweat rate of two litres an hour, that's three hours, but that's, you know, two litres an hour is very high in most endurance events. More likely it's going to be like one to one and a half litres, which is sort of four to six hours, or possibly in some of the ultra distance events or events in cooler conditions, it's going to be even less than that, you know, below one litre an hour. So again, you know, may not be even relevant for eight or 10 hours of exercise. So that's the first rule of thumb. So is consuming more than 70% of my fluid losses actually likely to be beneficial? The second question is, is replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses physically possible for you? So it might be beneficial, but can you physically do it? And what I'm talking about here is gut tolerance of fluid, the ability to drink and swallow without choking, which is relevant if you're trying to run a two-hour marathon, for example. Um, so you know, events or, or where people have really high sweat rates might mean that the 70% replacement might be useful, but it results in a really high drinking rate required, you know, potentially well in excess of one and a half litres an hour. And that's unlikely to be physically tolerated by the vast majority of people. So I mentioned last week a criteria of about a 1.8 litre an hour sweat rate. So if you're sweating more than that, it's unlikely that, you know, drinking more than 70% of that 1.8 litres an hour is, is going to be physically possible. And then the final question, is replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses practically achievable for you? And what I mean by this is obviously different events. You'll have different opportunities to access fluid along the course or carry with you depending on you know, what your event is. So if you can't actually access that amount of fluid, it doesn't matter if you tolerate it, it doesn't matter if you need it, you're not going to be able to drink it. And so that's the other thing we have to consider here as well. So yeah, if the replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses is not beneficial, is not physically possible, or is not practically achievable. Any one of those three things kind of rules this approach out in terms of you know sweat testing and replacing a particular amount of sodium. But if you answer yes to all of those questions and then it might be beneficial for you, then the amount then depends on your sweat sodium concentration to a degree. So obviously you need to make sure you measure that properly. And then as a bit of a general rule of thumb, if you have a very low sweat sodium concentration, somewhere maybe down around 20 millimoles per litre, and that's the whole body value, then really you probably only need to start purposefully replacing salt or sodium losses when you're getting close to 100% fluid replacement. And even then you probably only need to replace about 40% of your sodium losses there to maintain that blood sodium concentration. If you're like the average person, so your sweat sodium concentration is around that sort of 40 millimoles per litre, then it's probably a matter of replacing about 30 to 50% of your sodium losses. And that's only if you're drinking you know, more than that kind of 70 to 80% of your fluid losses. If you have a high sweat sodium concentration, somewhere up around 60 millimoles per litre for a whole body value is pretty high then replacing maybe 40 to 60% of your sodium losses. And again, only if you're drinking sort of over that 70% of your sweat rate. 
And then if you have at the extreme upper end, and as I said, I think in today's episode, I don't think I've ever seen this. I've heard of other people that have, but I've never seen it personally, uh, around 80 millimoles per litre, then you're looking at replacing maybe 65 to 85% of sodium losses if you're drinking sort of, you know, 70, 80% plus of your, your fluid back again. So for the majority of people with kind of a normal sweat sodium concentration, you're looking at maybe 30 to 60% of your sodium losses being replaced during exercise. Uh, and you probably rarely need to go much beyond 60% replacement. The form of sodium that that comes in, whether it's in drinks, gels, food, tablets, or capsules or things like that, probably doesn't matter. We don't really have good data on that, but there's nothing to suggest that it should matter. And then, you know, sodium chloride versus sodium citrate. So how, you know, what form does the sodium come in chemically is really unknown. And that's something that we don't know whether replacing the sodium without the chloride actually matters or not. And then finally, after all of that, you know, none of this is sort of saying don't or never have sodium in, in any situation. You can still have sodium. You just need to adjust it for personal taste preferences rather than, you know, going out and testing your sodium losses and having a specific amount during exercise. Uh, and you certainly don't have to do, overdo it in those situations. You're just taking it for, for flavour purposes. Well done. Well summarised. Um, hopefully, yeah, the listeners enjoyed these two episodes. Uh, I think it's a very relevant question that we get asked. So I will be referring athletes on to these two. Um, and I think it's a great one for practitioners as well, actually. So now getting up to our next episode, Al, we're up to 48A should I get regular bloods and what should I test for? And we are joined by the one and only Dr. Alice McNamara. So we're very thankful that she accepted our invitation to come back on. And, yeah, again, I think a, a great question that's that's relevant to our listeners. So um, looking forward to getting stuck into that one next week. But otherwise, I guess just a reminder to our listeners that if they do have a question that they'd like answered on the podcast, they can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And remembering that there's more than about 45 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. But you may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only actually show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them. Uh, and then if you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition question for their training or their racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know so they can stop hassling you. And otherwise, we will love and leave you and see you next week. Yep, we'll do it, everyone. See you then.